Hello, and welcome to Ipsy Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm Mabel Romero, Assistant Professor of Law at Northern Illinois University College of Law. My guest today is Michael Sinha. Dr. Sinha is a research fellow at the Harvard-MIT Center for Regulatory Science at Harvard Medical School, and he's also a visiting scholar at the Center for Health Policy and Law at the Northeastern University School of Law. We're going to be discussing a trio of papers today, the first being The Perils of Panic, Ebola, HIV, and the Intersection of Global Health and Law, which was published in the American Journal of Law and Medicine in 2016. The second is A Panic Foretold, which was published in Critical Public Health in 2016. And the third is COVID-19, Law and Limits of Quarantine, which was recently published in the, in the New England Journal of Medicine. So thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Sinha. Um, this is a really interesting trio of papers, especially given what we're facing right now. Absolutely. Happy to join. So I found this read with regard to the perils of panic and with Ebola and HIV, as well as your second paper that we're going to be discussing, A Panic Foretold, really fascinating in that it might be looking at this comparison with regard to the response that we had to Ebola and AIDS epidemics, but it's also just very salient right now. Looking back historically at you know, the different responses that this country had to Ebola and AIDS epidemics, what similarities were there when it came to responding to these sorts of new illnesses, which were novel in the United States at the time? Yeah, so I think the similarities lie in the fact that these are all emerging infectious diseases that are just, there's just not that much known about them. We've also seen with HIV and Ebola, especially that there was a tendency to, to use tactics like othering. So essentially typecasting or blaming certain populations for the rise of a disease. So HIV was initially considered to be a condition that Haitians, hemophiliacs, homosexuals, Ebola, it was seen as West African, this African foreign disease of people who eat bush meat. And now we're really seeing, at least in the beginning, we started to see othering in the, in the setting of uh, COVID-19. So you saw discussions that this virus emerged in a seafood market that uh, Chinese people prone to eating bats, and then this could be somehow related to the outbreak. And you're also seeing it now because our president in the United States continues to refer to uh, coronavirus as the Chinese virus. And so I think it's a really blatant attempt to try to stereotype and outcast certain people in our population. And it potentially becomes very dangerous politically and has a detrimental impact on populations. So it sounds like there are a lot of commonalities here with regard to sort of taking these different illnesses and making them seem sort of foreign and threatening and othering potentially, not potentially, but actually vulnerable populations and the like. So let's start off with talking about the history of AIDS and how that epidemic broke out and how it was treated here. Well, not treated, but discussed at least, especially in the public arena in the United States. Yeah, absolutely. So the CDC first started noticing cases of rare skin cancer and uh, connected it to immunodeficiency. This was reported in the New York Times, I believe, in uh, late 1981. And the administration, President Ronald Reagan's administration, really, although they were receiving news about HIV, 
made no mention of HIV in the public discourse at all. And surprisingly, it was uh, the Surgeon General at the time, C. Everett Koop, who was the only one that was sounding the alarm and talking about HIV as a real problem. And so it took, I think, around four years before President Reagan even used the word HIV in a public address. So a lot of these public figures, it sounds like, acted like, you know, this wasn't really anything to worry about, that this was only affecting certain populations. Once they started talking more public, publicly, just mentioned that, you know, President Reagan didn't start talking about this, I believe, until 1985, is what your paper said. What did that, what did the tenor of that discussion look like? Or sound like? It really, again, was one of those tales where he simply said, you know, we have this virus affecting certain people in our society, but other people are completely immune to it. So essentially, it poses limited to no risk to other populations. So given that some of those populations were vulnerable and at risk, I mean, we're talking about, you'd mentioned Haitian immigrants, um, gay men and the like, were there any sorts of coercive measures that people talked about taking when it came to trying to make sure that the illness, at least in their imagination, didn't expand, expand out into the general population? So there was. When Haitian immigrants were uh, picked up on the shores of uh, the U.S. trying to come across uh, the Caribbean Sea, they were actually taken to Guantanamo Bay and and held there. It was a matter of uh, just simply saying, you're from a certain country, therefore you have a certain higher risk and we're going to keep you in a facility offshore. The same reason that they use Guantanamo Bay more recently, but an offshore site that insulates uh, the United States and the greater 48 states from uh, anything that goes on in those facilities. I guess what I was really shocked at was reading about how there were these really inhumane, terrible sorts of suggestions, such as tattooing people who had AIDS or somehow rounding them up in other ways. And it seems like there was a a full-on panic going on here. So I I think the real panic that came on in the United States came on after people started to realize that so-called innocent people could be affected by HIV and AIDS. And that's when you saw Ryan White, who was infected uh, through a blood transfusion. You saw Kimberly Bergales, who was infected by a, a dental procedure. And that's when people started to realize that, oh, the the risks are actually much higher than we previously anticipated. But it was absolutely thought that in the same way you think of quarantining people who are uh, isolating people who have an infection or quarantining people who are at high risk of infection, they thought, you know, yes, maybe a tattoo or a brand or a stamp or something would identify people and uh, keep them away from the so-called innocent people who could be exposed. It sounds like the most absurd sort of knee-jerk reaction that you could possibly have to this. What sort of anticipated um, sort of public health consequences could you think of down the road if you were to take actions such as branding people or tattooing them? What does that lead to? I mean, I think it's extremely problematic. It leads to the same sort of tactics that we saw in uh, Nazi Germany, right? So we're identifying people by religion there, identifying people by 
say, disease status here, it, it, it becomes very problematic. Well, I would think that it leads to a rather strong disincentive to even go and get tested, you know, to see if you have this illness, correct? Like, I would imagine that the public health outcomes would be the exact opposite of what you'd hope for. Absolutely. The idea that if you seek care and, and are identified to be positive for a certain condition, that yes, you would be branded, you would be ostracized, whatever it may be. You know, and I think it's important to note that that risk still happens today in the current setting because we have undocumented immigrants who are concerned about seeking access to health care, what that means for their immigration status. I think there's a real disconnect there in terms of if we're starting to test everybody, what does that mean for those populations? Uh, the idea of a public charge, which is thinking about a use of public resources by people who are undocumented, that also drives people away from seeking medical attention when they need it the most. But in a pandemic setting, that means that those individuals are not being tested, they're not being isolated, they're in fact spreading disease because they're afraid of accessing the health care Before system. the AIDS epidemic really took hold in the United States, there's sort of this, this sort of idea that, hey, the United States has done away with infection, we've done away with these sorts of communicable diseases and the like. So how did the AIDS epidemic really lead to a change in the study of emerging infectious diseases? Right. I, th I think it was around that time. Uh, and I believe the quote that we included in the paper was, uh, it was disproven. It was actually, there was actually a whole article I read about essentially, is this quote, uh, we've turned the page on infectious diseases, a real quote. And so somebody actually went, dug deep and studied and found that it was probably a mischaracterization of his words. That said, I do think there was this idea that we had treated or found solutions to every infectious disease that was out there, but then we really started to see an emergence of other infections and other diseases in which they they were new, they were undiscovered, they were uncharacterized, and so they obviously had no treatments. And that led people to start uh, paying more, much more attention to it. And so you saw the Surgeon General, you saw the CDC, you saw a lot of these entities in the early 80s starting to pay much more attention to these okay, issues. Okay, so they start paying a bit more attention to these issues and you see this really sort of change how we approach the study of these sorts of emerging infectious diseases. Um, what exactly is the public, even you know, pop culturally, sort of the messaging that gets out there with regard to the potential for pandemics or other disease outbreaks in the meantime? The message is it, it, it's where it's exactly when we talk about uh, the balance uh, between complacency and panic, right? So you don't want people to be complacent and act like the threat isn't there or the risk isn't there because you'll have diseases spreading completely unmitigated because people are not paying attention to public health alerts. But on the far extreme, you have something that veers into the realm of panic. And so panic being a setting in which people are not necessarily behaving or acting rationally. Um, you see that now when people are rushing to grocery stores to, to buy rolls of toilet paper, you know, even though toilet paper, it, it sort of doesn't really make sense outside of the fact that I guess when people enter those stores, they think, what am I going to need? And that's what they intuitively grab. 
but it's this notion that there is it, it's it's the lack of of control right and so you go from this oh it won't affect me it's not going to happen to me to uh, almost a doomsday scenario and somewhere in between is that comfort zone where you have people who will listen to rational voices who will follow public health guidances and expertise and and uh, act rationally in a way that benefits the public health and benefits uh, response to the epidemic. So how is this sort of response of panic just on the part of the public? How's it how's that detrimental to, you know, public health aims and trying to get epidemics under control? Yeah, so I th- I think the challenge is that panic is this intuitive, it's almost this fight or flight response, right? The idea is you have someone who fears the unknown, has nothing that they can actually do about the unknown, and that's what you see in in this current outbreak. You have people who are who are really afraid of uh, COVID nineteen, who don't know what to be doing about it, and uh, their first thought is, you know, let's try to blame somebody for this. You know that China brought this to the United States, or this is the fault of Chinese people. It's a way of rationalizing that panic or that fear to say, well, it's their fault. Ebola response in the United States. We saw an Ebola outbreak that lasted briefly, I believe, back in 2014. What response did you see back then to this potential for an Ebola outbreak? So we definitely saw a more coordinated response than we're seeing today. We were able to identify isolated cases we we made some mistakes in that the individual in uh, Dallas, Texas, actually entered the emergency department setting, uh, was sent home before he returned and was diagnosed with Ebola. We saw nurses become exposed to that patient and uh, develop symptoms consistent with Ebola. So we also saw... Um, we, we saw some guidance from the CDC in terms of personal protective equipment, but we didn't see enough. Um, we saw hospitals starting to prepare in case the outbreak uh, became a bigger issue in the United States. We didn't see consistent preparation across the board. And so I think in to some degree, it was a good test run to try to get a sense of what we need to do better. Was there a lot of public panic again? There was absolutely a, a lot of public panic in that setting. Um, I remember it was Dr. Craig Spencer, who I believe he's an emergency room physician and a public health scholar. I've seen him on, on Twitter recently as well. But he was returning from, uh, I believe, Liberia. And he had gone on the the New York City MTA, he had gone bowling. Um, so there was a big public panic. You saw articles in the news uh, talking about whether you can get a bola from subway poles, whether you could get a bola from bowling balls. Really, I think it was a missed opportunity for public health messaging because the CDC had been disseminating very clear information about how Ebola is transmitted. But yet you are still seeing these articles in the popular press trying to refute, and but, but also I think potentially feeding into this frenzy of panic about uh, how is Ebola really transmitted. This notion that 
Ebola had somehow mutated and become airborne. It's the same idea that you're seeing now with COVID-19, that it's somehow mutating along the way, whereas the science is just simply not showing. A lot of public speculation, a lot of public panic. Um, and I imagine that this might also hamper sort of the public health response as well. It absolutely hampers the public health response. And I think the biggest threat to a public health response is a public that doesn't believe in the authority or the science behind what those public health experts are saying. So if they simply say, well, you know, this virus is not airborne, Ebola virus is not airborne, and the public says, well, we don't believe you, we're now worried about bowling balls and subway poles, you know, I think that sends a a very tricky message to uh, public health authorities in terms of how to communicate information uh, that the public will actually believe and respond. Let's talk to. about all of this in the context of our current COVID-19 pandemic then. What you're seeing now are interesting responses, you know, from different local governments as well as the federal government, instituting, for example, legally enforceable quarantines going into effect in places like San Francisco and the rest of the Bay Area, place, large cities like Los Angeles, Chicago. You hear a lot of these different terms with regard to quarantine, isolation, and the like getting bandied about. Is there a difference between those two? Yeah, so it's really interesting. Uh, Professor Parmet notes that the U.S. law actually confuses isolation and quarantine as well. So we're not alone in that. But the idea is that you isolate the infected and you quarantine the questionable. So if people are diagnosed with having a specific infection, they need to be isolated for the duration of that infection. Whether that means isolation at home with mild symptoms or isolation within a hospital or a clinical setting until symptoms abide and a patient fully recovers, meaning that they're no longer shedding virus or potentially... Uh, communicating disease to others. Now, quarantine is more for people who have been exposed. And so I think when we talk about the idea of mass quarantine, it's a little trickier because you're thinking more about geographic quarantine or cordon sanitaire, the idea that if you block off a geographic region of a state, a city, that you could prevent transmission of disease. Now, the problem we've seen in doing uh, quarantines like those, for example, the quarantines of the cruise ships, is that you have people who are infected. You have people that were exposed but not symptomatic that should have been quarantined. But at the same time, you also had a lot of people that right at the first point that this conversation was happening had not yet been exposed to someone who was infected. And so when you trap everybody in that uh, small area, everyone is eventually going to be exposed. So you, you increase the risk of exposure dramatically if you do that. And in terms of geographic sanitary cordons, it, it really comes down to whether or not the public health uh, imperative makes sense. So how do you decide that the city limits of a particular city makes sense, but that not cordoning off part of a county or excluding certain parts of a city and including others. How, how do you determine whether that makes sense from a public health standpoint? And so I think courts are going to be much more likely to scrutinize and reject 
geographic quarantines like that because, as I said, it potentially exposes people to risk. People who are uninfected could be exposed and then become infected later. You know, and you have to weigh that against what is the public benefit of doing Let's talk about how some of these different orders with regard to quarantining or isolating work. Um, However it is that we use those terms, you know, it sounds like interchangeably under the law or in a confused fashion under the law here in this country. Some of these are voluntary and some of them are being imposed with some sort of um, mechanisms for enforcement behind them. Where do local governments and, and the federal government get the power to do this stuff? I think the courts may ultimately decide that the state governments or the local governments do not have the power to do these things. And so you actually see states hedging a little bit in what they say about about lockdowns or about stay-at-home orders. So, for instance, in Massachusetts, where I live, Governor Charlie Baker has said, I want to make sure people stay at home, that they socially isolate. But this is not a lockdown. This is not an order. And so he's backing off the sort of legality of that. The question is, if you get that gray zone where, yes, um, it maybe it's not an order, but you actually see enforcement, I think that's a gray zone. And it, it's likely to be uh, litigated over the next uh, several months to years. And so we don't necessarily know what the limits of those are going to be or, or how they're going to play out. But I think the really unique aspect of uh, public health being largely in the state and local ordinance is that you see 50 different state responses. So you see uh, some states who say, you know, we we don't have anything in place, uh, so there's no social distancing going on at all. And then you see other places where they're bordering on, you know, enforceable quarantines that may actually infringe on civil liberties. You know, some of these powers have been used, I imagine, somewhat broadly in the past in prior epidemics and the like. Have courts ever found the exercise of those powers to be too broad? Yeah, so they absolutely have. The real question, I think, for us is COVID-19 is really an infection that is far more transmissible than others I think we've seen in the past in major outbreaks. And so it rivals uh, perhaps measles in terms of how infectious it is. And so what that means is that if you have an r not of two or three, that means that one individual could potentially infect two or three other people with the, the, the condition. And so I think we we haven't seen cases that have really addressed infections or infectious diseases with this degree of spread, I so think. So is there a federal quarantine power that exists within the CDC that they can exercise? So there is, and it was recently created by regulation that there is a, a federal power to quarantine. We actually saw the federal government uh, enforce and use these powers recently. Um, So the federal government uh, did isolate and quarantine some U.S. citizens that came back from China. They did uh, do this with the cruise ships, as I mentioned. I think the idea behind creating those regulations was that they wanted to try to figure out 
some way of uh, developing a more uniform national response to infectious disease outbreaks. Is the CDC required to use the least restrictive means possible when they use these powers? As far as I know, yes. Although what concerns me is the interface between uh, the CDC and other federal agencies like uh, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, where you potentially put people at risk of immigration consequences at the same time as you're trying to address a public health epidemic. And so I think there is still some mistrust of whether the CDC is going to use the least restrictive means necessary or is going to share information with other federal agencies uh, that have much more problematic consequences for for people who are being uh, quarantined or isolated. Because recently, I know that, you know, President Trump had limited travel to the United States by immigrants from places like Iran and China. And he didn't necessarily do that using any of the CDC's powers or piggybacking off of those so much as using um, immigration regulations, right? So the president has a fair degree of executive authority to do a number of these things. And so it's independent of the CDC. It's independent of state authority. The the uh, president has the authority to do a number of uh, things with regard to immigration. What constitutional limits are there on the exercise of quarantine powers? You know, that's it's a really good question. And I think it's a question that is, is it's actually evolving. And so... Uh, we noted that uh, after Ebola, there were lawsuits about uh, individuals who are quarantined uh, challenging uh, the constitutionality of those quarantines. And courts were inclined to actually uphold those quarantines as uh, necessary. And so they they weighed in favor of uh, state action and essentially against uh, constitutional liberties in those settings. And so my sense would be that this is still a gray zone depending on how the the individual is being quarantined or the group is being quarantined. But we don't necessarily know how those cases are going to unfold in light of the Ebola cases. I mean, it looks like, you know, just from your COVID-19 article that came out recently, you can't have at least you can't have overt racism um, based on the Juho versus Williamson case in 1900. It looks like you've got to have a pretty strong basis, some sort of clear and compelling evidence to use those quarantine powers. And at least, you know, someone can turn to the courts and get judicial review by way of habeas relief to get, you know, these sorts of decisions with regard to quarantining individuals or communities reviewed. Do you see those changing over time, given our current conditions? Yeah, so I it's it's really hard to know, but I I think we're for the first time in over a hundred years we're seeing a widespread pandemic that's likely to affect a substantial percentage of the U.S. population. So estimates range between thirty and sixty percent of all Americans are going to be uh, affected by COVID nineteen. So we don't really have anything in recent history that compares to that. And so that's why I think we're we're largely starting with a clean slate. So if we were talking about, you know, the Spanish flu or influenza in 1918, 
That's really the only epidemic that I think, or pandemic, that really compares to what we're seeing right now. Will current travel bans, mandatory quarantines, and the like be enough to end the current outbreak, you think, or not? I honestly think we've passed a point of no return in terms of certain uh, public health measures. And so, for instance, travel bans. I think we had enough of the SARS-CoV-2 virus uh, that that causes uh, COVID-19. We had enough of that virus being transmitted locally that closing our borders really had no impact on local spread. In your opinion, just what exactly should we be doing at this point? There are a couple of things that we absolutely have to do. So we absolutely have to socially isolate, socially distance. Um, and the idea behind that is primarily to uh, protect our healthcare system from becoming flooded with cases to the extent that we crash the entire system. But at the same time, it has to be coupled with widespread testing. And so, again, it gets back to that very foundational principle that if you isolate the infected and quarantine the questionable and then everyone else gets to roam freely, that once you treat those infected people or they uh, or they die, and once those quarantined people either become infected or they no longer uh, – they cross a certain threshold without developing symptoms, you know, you need a massive, massive scale up of testing to be able to uh, make sure that the social isolation and uh, social distancing work. So the foundation really is, yes, it's fine for us to work from home and work remotely and avoid public spaces or public gatherings to close down large parts or sectors of the economy for a while. But there has to be something done in the meantime. And so if we're only testing the people that are the sickest in the hospital, we already have a high degree of suspicion that they are going to test positive. And that test ultimately doesn't have a tremendous amount of value. It doesn't value you or I as we sit at home and... Uh, deal with the consequences of the epidemic. What would help is if, for example, everyone in my neighborhood was tested or high-risk people in my neighborhood were tested. And again, it, it comes back to, you know, you have to test a certain percentage of the population. So it's almost like a herd immunity, but flipped on its head that you have to test a certain percentage of people to be able to say with a, a certain degree of certainty that uh, the infection is not going to come back and in the same way that other infections do, especially like seasonal infections like influenza. The real sort of population-wide immunity is only going to come if, if three things happen. So the first is herd immunity. So literally so many people get infected from uh, COVID-19 and recover that there's a population-based immunity. The second is we develop a vaccine, which I think we're at least a year or two away from, if not further. And the third is to develop a treatment. So maybe that's an antiretroviral. Maybe that's maybe there are other types of medications. We're seeing use of uh, Gilead's Ebola treatment, remdesivir, in some cases, showing some promise. 
But we've also seen that repurposing of other drugs like malaria drugs actually are dangerous. And given that they have not been studied, I think it's really, uh, really problematic uh, that the president uh, advertises those uh, drugs as treatments or cures on uh, national broadcasts. That is incredibly troubling, but I am very grateful that we had the chance to talk to you on this show. Um, Dr. Sinha, our pandemic law expert here. But yes, thank you for joining us. And I found that incredibly informative. I know that a lot of our listeners will, and perhaps, you know, reassuring to learn more about what is really happening with the situation when we're in these sort of uncertain times. So thank you. Absolutely. I would just uh, close by saying, you know, I, I do think we have past epidemics and we have past legal cases to rely on, but there is a lot that's unknown about uh, the legal response to this. There's a lot unknown about how this is going to play out. And there will absolutely be a new batch of lawsuits from which we're going to learn a lot more about individual rights, civil liberties, uh, state rights, federal rights when it comes to uh, intervening in uh, public health emergencies like this. Well, then I hope we have the chance to chat again on here. Absolutely. Simply must all it has all the consultants do. Stalling, stalling the art of medicine. Surely it must be a germ. It could even be myocytes. It could be luetic, but why be prophetic? And where are the spirochetes? Surely she hasn't conceived, as thousands of women will do. It could be Nicerian, but she wouldn't carry an infection so taboo. So it must be a virus. I'll search my treatment file. The divided doses and even hypnosis may make the prognosis mild. Oh, it must not disturb me. I'll turn my TV dial. Perhaps the diagnosis will come through osmosis. Decisions are driving me wild. Stalling, stalling the heart. Of Miss Weems, take a letter. <laughs>